Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel, broadcasting remotely. It's more than 11 months into the pandemic, and the state has begun its second phase of vaccinating residents beyond healthcare workers, first responders, and nursing home residents. Today, where we live, we talked to Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont about how it's going in a week that saw vaccine appointments canceled and doses delayed. Besides running the state during a pandemic, next week, the governor will release his proposal for the next two-year state budget, with the projected deficit to be $2.5 billion over those two years combined. Later, we'll hear from Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. First, what questions do you have for Governor Lamont? Join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Now, this is uh, Connecticut Public Radio's winter membership drive this week. We're not doing pledge breaks this hour, but you can always go to WMPR.org to support. Now, Governor Lamont, welcome back to the show. Morning, Lucy. So let's just uh, dig right in because I know you're going to be heading out to a vaccination clinic in the city of Waterbury, vaccinations on the minds of many uh, state residents. Uh, Earlier, we heard that UConn Health and Waterbury Hospital had to postpone vaccine appointments this week. Originally, UConn Health saying their allocation was less than previously expected. And just the other day, almost 1,000 doses were brought to UConn Health by the National Guard, and they were able to reschedule uh, patients who'd had their appointments canceled. Uh, You said in an interview with CBS Face the Nation that one or two of these um, systems may be overpromised, and you're watching that situation carefully. So now uh, that uh, they've gotten their doses, at least one of the health systems, would you say this is a one-off, Governor Lamont, or does this raise concerns about the pipeline for vaccines in our state? A couple of things, Lucy. Let, let's pull the lens back for a second. Just remember that... Um, Connecticut is one of the very best states in the country when it comes to getting people vaccinated. Higher percentage of our vaccines actually end up as a shot in the arm. We have over 10% of our people who have been vaccinated. Uh, but you're right. Um, we were getting from the feds, uh, you know, a week notice. And then the hospitals, for example, would ask for an allocation on Tuesday. We tell them what that allocation is going to be on Thursday. The allocation would arrive for them on Monday or Tuesday. So um, I'd say in 95% of the cases, it's worked pretty well. In a couple of cases, um, you know, one or the other have gotten a bit ahead of themselves. But I think um, it's going to get more complicated, by the way, Lucy. Um, we're going to get a lot more vaccines and the uh, you know next group of people able to be vaccinated opens up. But I think we're ready. 
when you talk about it, it's going to get more complicated. So what is the state doing to make sure that doses are reserved for the people at most risk? So right now, residents over 75 years or older can get the vaccine, but there have been reports of, of people that don't fit this criteria getting vaccinated, including school board members and spouses in Region 14. That's according to the Hartford Current. You've also mentioned and others, you're worried about people that have been uh, more at risk of this disease, including communities of color, also at a low, uh, getting low vaccination rates compared to white suburban residents. So what can you do, Governor, to make sure equity is first and foremost? Well, um, you know, as you know, we're working that really hard. Um, uh, first of all, you're right. We prioritize the health care workers uh, in nursing homes and um, and hospitals. Uh, those were um, prim- overwhelmingly nurses, often um, uh, women of color. Um, uh, we got them prioritized, number one. Not everybody wanted to get vaccinated, but we've gone back a second time, and especially in the nursing homes, the number of nurses willing to get vaccinated has gone up quite a bit. You know, our next group, you're right, was 75 and over. Uh, obviously, the group that's you know eight times more likely to uh, suffer fatalities than other demographics. Um, also really important what that means in terms of uh, occupancy in our hospitals. Next will be 65, but at the same time, Lucy, we got our mobile vans. We're going to those underserved communities, often um, you know, people of color, going to churches, going to elderly housing, going to congregate settings, um, uh, going to prisons, and um, doing everything we can to make sure these folks who maybe are a little less likely to sign up online with their iPad Make sure uh, they don't get left behind because they're a group that's most likely to um, suffer complications. But when I mentioned there are instances where people that don't fit this criteria, we know there is a supply issue in this country that are getting vaccinated. What can you and the Department of Public Health do to make sure that doesn't happen again? Um, Look, you're right. Um, Some people play games. uh, Some people inadvertently. uh, vaccinate not just the school nurses, but uh, uh, some of the people in the school. Um, uh, right now, I think uh, you asking these questions, the community outreach, they know if there's a sense that the vaccinations are not fundamentally fair and that the right people aren't getting vaccinated first and there's some sense of special favor, uh, that undercuts uh, what we're all trying to do. Uh, you're asking, what do I do? Do I arrest them or do I um, sanction them or do I find them? Uh, Right now, I, we shout about and say stop. And, uh, you know, uh, Bridgeport, there's been a little confusion there. We're bringing um, uh, a few folks from our Department of Public Health down just to help them regularize uh, the vaccination process there. You mentioned Bridgeport. They're without a health director. That's problematic uh, in a pandemic. Uh, you mentioned earlier that the state is doing well compared to other states in terms of uh, the vaccination rate of, of its population, but also across the country. Again, disparities uh, reaching uh, people of color across our country, including even in our state. And so you mentioned these mobile vans. But does the message have to change uh, to reach, uh, again, communities that are more at risk, who have core mobility? comorbidities, Governor? Oh, yeah. I I need advocates in the community uh, uh, telling people every day it's safe if you care about not just your health, but your family and your community, get vaccinated. Don't fuss about Moderna versus Pfizer versus J&J. They all save lives. And uh, so when it comes to um, 
you know, some of the underserved communities were trying to get really strong advocates. In New Haven, they got the Board of Alders calling up um, folks, telling them um, it's really important. I'm going to be I'm meeting with ministers and trying to get them to tell their congregations, just like they did uh, six months ago when it came to testing. And some of the urban populations were a little reluctant about getting tested. Um, we went, we took the testing van right to the church. We rented the parking lot. And right after the service, people came out of the uh, church or the houses of worship, and you could get tested. We're going to do that with vaccinations as well. You're hearing Governor Ned Lamont here on Where We Live. If you have a question for the governor, you can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Is age the right criteria moving forward, uh, Governor? Again, when we think about people who may be 75 and older uh, at a population that is at high risk, but they may live with people in their homes who don't, they aren't uh, 75, and so they're not able to get the vaccine. Again, comorbidities being an issue among certain populations. Is there a better way to come up with these uh, groups moving forward as the vaccination uh, plan uh, continues? Well, obviously, 75 and over, much more likely. 65 and over, much more likely. 65 and over, if you're black and brown, you probably have the same um, complication or fatality rates as a white person, 75 and over. Uh, your question sort of, Lucy, is how long do you go down that age scale? Um, it, it's it's certainly um, a lot cleaner to implement rather than saying, um, are you a nurse or a daycare person or do you have, um, you know, one or two comorbidities? But uh, so at the same time we're doing based on age, we're definitely going out to the most vulnerable communities and making sure that nobody's left behind. Uh, Kathy tweeted, she wants to know, will the state partner with CVS and Walgreens to bring the vaccines to state-run facilities? So that's DMS, DDS, the Department of Correction, and other congregate settings like group homes, the way that the state did for nursing homes and assisted living facilities, Governor. Uh, yeah, Kathy, uh, we will. As you know, um, CVS and Walgreens are already opening up their first or their retail outlets. Um, little back and forth. We'd like some of those retail outlets to be in some more urban communities where, um, you know, a lot of vulnerable people are. But to your bigger question about the congregate settings, um, you know, elderly housing, mental health, um, addiction, you know, those are priorities for us. And either it's going to be CVS or we're going to be doing this ourselves or working with Hartford Health and uh, the other hospital um, providers to get those mobile vans to those communities. Again, you can join our conversation with the governor, 888-720-9677. Before I take a caller, uh, governor, we know that uh, people, especially if they have loved ones who are teachers, they want to see teachers in our state be a higher priority with the vaccine. Uh, is that something that you're considering? Uh, well, certainly they're in the, in the next group. Um, a little more likely to be white, by the way, Lucy, than um, some of the other categories we're talking about. But look, we're prioritizing teachers as well. Uh, but it, it's, I'm not gonna beat around the bush. I mean, we've got um, you know, well over a million people in this next group is defined in a 1B by the CDC. So not everybody can be a priority, but believe me, those teachers who are showing up in the classroom every day, making a difference for those kids, um, I'm gonna do everything I can to make sure they get vaccinated, vaccinated early. And by the way, we've already prioritized teachers for testing. We have bluntly a lot more testing capacity um, so that we have special times and places for teachers to get tested. 
You mentioned they're in the next group. So what does that mean, Governor? So we're in February. Could teachers get vaccinated starting in March or April? Uh, Many people worried about these variants that show that are more contagious, and and they're worried about that, Governor. Uh, I think we're going to go, Lucy, 75 and above, 65 and above. And then um, we're working with our, our friends down in Washington, see what guidance they've got, what we do in terms of next categories but really focusing on underserved populations and um, some essential workers. I'll be blunt. I mean, are are daycare people um, essential workers? How about frontline uh, manufacturing and defense industries? Are they uh, essential workers? How about restaurant workers? They they show up every day and interfacing with people. So there are a lot of groups that can make a case that they're essential workers, and that's the balance I'm trying to reach. Mm. But you have also, under our Commissioner Cardona, who uh, may, uh, again, be moving very quickly uh, to U.S. Uh, Secretary depending of Education, depending on his confirmation hearing, you've been very strong about keeping schools open. And so wouldn't that give teachers and other staff peace of mind that they're in these buildings, some very old, not great ventilation, with a lot of bodies, that they can be protected, Governor? The answer to that is yes. It's the same answer for a lot of the other uh, essential workers defined by the CDC. But uh, believe me, I understand uh, I'm doing everything I can to give teachers the confidence that they can get back to school. Uh, Miguel Cordonitz is hearing today. Tune in, cheer him on. He's going to be an amazing secretary of education. He believed the strongly in getting her kids back into the classroom, at least the option of going to the classroom, really prioritized uh, public health and public safety in the classrooms. And and thankfully, uh, Connecticut, compared to at least all the other states in the Northeast uh, and beyond, we have more of our kids with the option to go into the classroom than just about anybody. We're going to take some calls. You can join us, 888-720-9677, as we talk with Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont. Dee's calling in from Clinton. Dee, go ahead. Dee, can you hear me? Yes, I'm just wondering about prioritizing teachers. I'm an older teacher, and I work in a building that's older with uh, ventilation issues, and I'm wondering um, about teachers um, being prioritized, especially older teachers, as soon as possible for the vaccine. Yeah, Dee, well, as we said before, certainly older teachers, um, because uh, they're in the 65 and above category, um, although maybe they're not that many of them, and uh, Lucy and I were just talking about, you know, teachers in general, especially the teachers who are actually in the classroom of every day, do what we can to give them a priority. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677. Pat's calling in from Newington. Pat, what's your question for Governor Lamont? Uh, my question is, under your executive orders, you have extended the immunity for nursing homes and assisted living facilities. Um, uh, because these uh, these facilities were the first people to have their uh, their um, their um, workers and residents um, vaccinated, uh, why are we continuing to extend this civil immunity? They should be held responsible for negligence, especially during this time. Governor, yeah, Pat, I think that's a, a really good question. I mean, first of all. Um, we gave them immunity in the hospitals back during the height of the pandemic. It was, um, we were bringing a lot of retiree, retired nurses back. Uh, we were trying out new therapies. You could sort of understand why I didn't want to do anything that made uh, nursing homes or hospitals hesitant about taking care of people in need. 
and you can say, all right, that's then, now's now, uh, people have been uh, vaccinated in their nursing homes, um, let's hold them accountable. And it, frankly, I'll be blunt, it's something we're looking at. Um, uh, remember, as Lucy pointed out, there are a variety of new variants that are out there that may give people some hesitancy about um, you know, going into work. But um, more importantly, we are holding people accountable. I believe in that. We shut down one nursing home that was not getting the job done. We've sanctioned uh, other nursing homes. We're inspecting them all the more often. Guard is going in there, making sure that the um, antiseptic rules are being uh, followed carefully. So you hold people accountable by lawsuits, and you also hold them accountable by regulation. Uh, Governor, with your emergency authorization extended through April 20th, right now that civil immunity for nursing homes has also been extended. Uh, but you know, when we talk about uh, giving people a chance, especially if their loved ones are in one of these facilities and they worry about negligence and substandard care, I'm just wondering like, why continue this? You've been asked this question before and it's been extended. And so you know, what will be the point where you feel like that people should be able to have the freedom to file these lawsuits if they're worried about the care their loved ones are receiving? Well, Lucy, um, the most important thing is uh, with getting everybody uh, vaccinated in nursing homes and you getting tested, it's easier for you to come into the nursing home and see your loved one. Remember, that was um, not something we were allowing us some time ago. And we lost a lot of accountability, I think, in the nursing homes when you didn't have a, a daughter or a son who's able to speak up for you. Uh, again, we hold people accountable by regulation. We're pretty strict about that. Um, and the question is, uh, when do we allow lawsuits there? And, um, and it's something I'm looking at and we'll make up our mind very soon. Mm. Uh, right now, is it the Department of Public Health that would investigate claims of substandard care, Governor? Yeah, they, they are investigating and um, and they are coming down with fines and, and, like I said, shut down one nursing home. Again, you can join us 888-720-9677 as we talk with Governor Ned Lamont. Josh is calling in from West Hartford. Josh, go ahead. Hi, Governor Lamont. Thank you very much for all you've been doing. I just had a quick point I wanted to advocate. I know that you mentioned teachers and um, you know, my family member is a special education teacher. She's going in every day, kids in person. And a lot of these kiddos cannot wear masks because of, you know, behaviors and stuff. So she's at an increased risk, has no, you know, vaccine in sight and words from her union. And it's just seems like we're getting the runaround. And then, you know, there's um, speech and occupational therapy and stuff in the classroom who are being vaccinated. And I think something needs to be mentioned for special education teachers who are at a heightened risk. Um, so if there's anything you could do, we'd greatly appreciate it. No, Josh, thank you. Um, look, special education teachers, social workers dealing with folks with uh, um, intellectual disabilities, physical disabilities, not able always to wear the mask. Um, uh, there, there are a lot of um, groups that ought to be priorities. And uh, let's face it, the number one problem we've got is we don't have enough vaccines. Connecticut is well positioned to deliver five times as many vaccines, and there are a lot of essential workers out there to deserve it. Um, I can tell you, um, uh, I'm talking to the uh, CEO of Pfizer today. I'm saying it's great. We're getting a you know 10% increase in vaccines uh, you know over the last week from the feds, and, and that's kind of helpful. It's great that you're getting a, another um, 10,000 vaccines to our um, uh, retail facilities. That's great. 
when are we going to multiply that by a factor of two or three? And what can we at the state or federal level do to help move that along? Stephen's calling in from New Hartford. Stephen, what's your question? Uh, yes, my, my question is budget related. Uh, m- many towns in Connecticut are reliant on funding flowing from the state to the towns. And I'm wondering what it's going to look like in the upcoming budget. Uh, are the towns going to be facing uh, layoffs with their own employees and with library staff that rely on those same budget numbers uh, because of the pandemic? Yes, yeah, Stephen, um, excellent question. Uh, I, I give this um, the speech next week. Uh, here's, here's the deal. Um, first of all, like we did in our first budget, uh, we hold all of our towns and municipalities harmless so they know what they can count on and they can plan accordingly. Now, given the nature of the pandemic, um, we've got um, uh, tens of millions of additional dollars, uh, many, many of which are thanks to the feds, by the way, going to our municipalities. A lot of that is going to education. So um, we do everything we can to make sure our schools stay open, they stay open safely. Uh, we're trying to help out our um, municipalities um, a, a number of different ways. We've done a lot for small business. We've done a lot for overtime, doing what we can at the state level. And sort of the way, um, Stephen, it was with um, small business and the PPP program, if you remember that, Paycheck Protection, I can't bail out everybody, but we provided a bridge to the federal support. And um, I'd like to think you're gonna see um, federal support uh, over the next month or two. And you're gonna find in our budget, we're doing everything we can to keep our towns as well as municipalities uh, whole. And that goes for our not-for-profits as well. They're, they're working overtime. They're taking care of people in need. And we're getting them the additional resources they need. Governor, what can you tell us about your budget address uh, next Wednesday? Will you be introducing some new revenue sources for the state? What would they be? Uh, you know, when it comes to the revenue sources, um, first and foremost, I still, Lucy, have a transportation fund that's uh, going bankrupt. Nobody likes me to really bring that up. And it, um, But as you can imagine, people are driving less and the low price of gasoline and Teslas. There are a lot of reasons that... Um, we're going to have to find a way to fund our transportation system. So I've got, um, you know, two proposals there. One is called the Transportation Climate Initiative. It's not going to be very popular. It's a tough choice, but I'm doing it with my regional governors, something I like to do. And um, that's uh, money that's going to go to, um, you know, environment and uh, transportation. Um, and we've got a couple of other ideas there. And the general fund, I'm not looking to raise tax rates, something the five previous governors have done in their first term. I think it was their first term. Uh, but um, I think we're going to be probably, for example, looking at um, new sources of revenue, marijuana, um, online uh, gaming. And I think that's going to uh, bolster our situation. And, and finally, it's worth remembering, we do have a big rainy day fund. So to make sure that I don't have to cut social services during a pandemic, that gives us protection. And we'll see what the feds do. Uh, you know, the gap between the wealthy in this country and uh, middle and low income residents continues to grow, especially in our state. Uh, what was your reaction to Senate President Martin Looney's statewide property tax proposal, as well as Representative Scanlon proposing a tax credit for middle class and low income families, Governor? Well, the tax credit, I think, is something you're going to see coming out of the federal bill. I, I'd like to think they're still going to have in particular, the earned income tax credit, which will uh, be enormous. And look, uh, I was a Joe Biden supporter from the beginning. I understand uh, the um, 
the inequities in our society. It's going to be front and center in my budget. When it comes to raising taxes, uh, some of what you've just brought up, um, I think for a lot of that, I'm really going to rely upon the federal government to take the lead there. And let me tell you why. I mean, right now, um, I can raise taxes, and I'm already 40% more than Massachusetts and 20% more than Rhode Island and infinite more than places like Florida and, uh, and Texas, where thousands of people are going. And uh, one of the reasons, Lucy, we've done pretty well in this last economic cycle um, is because we had uh, people saying Connecticut's getting its fiscal house in order. Tens of thousands of families have moved into the state of Connecticut, and a lot of them were paying capital gains tax, and a lot of them helped our budget uh, go into balance for this current fiscal year. So when I ask you about the statewide property tax, this is not a proposal that you would support. You think that if this were to pass, people would leave our state governor? Uh, I think a whole new type of tax at this point in the middle of a pandemic, a tax on um, houses as low as $430,000, which are middle class houses. No, I don't think it's the right way to go. And as far as the tax credit, you want to see that coming from the federal government, not from the state of Connecticut for middle and low income families. Uh, let's see what the federal government does, Lucy. Um, they're um, uh, still getting their act together, but uh, I think you're going to see a significant relief in the uh, in the next bill. We have significant relief in the last bill, 900 billion that we, they did in December. But that's primarily oriented towards small businesses, the, the smallest businesses, and education and unemployment. Mm. Uh, last week, I believe, if I'm getting my uh, day straight, you proposed uh, universal access for broadband for our state by 2022. Uh, former Consumer Counsel Ellen Swanson-Katz was a bit a big advocate for uh, equitable broadband access. She left the job in July of 2019. Uh, there's been an acting Consumer Counsel, I believe, for more than 18 months. Why haven't you nominated a permanent Consumer Counsel, Governor? Well, first of all, on, on the broadband thing, um, Lucy, if we've learned anything, uh, equal access or equitable um, access to broadband is not a nice to have. It doesn't allow you to download uh, music and uh, shop on Amazon. It is absolutely vital when it comes to education, when it comes to telehealth and increasingly telecommuting and how you're able to work. The last two days, people were working from home because of a snowstorm. I can't let those people stay behind. I got a great group at Pura, which is the regulatory board that's doing everything it can to expand the broadband around the state. We'll be talking about that. The Consumer Council, Paul's got somebody in mind, really good. Uh, they just have to disentangle, I think, from what they're doing right now. So it's going to take a little bit longer. We know that you have to go to a vaccination clinic in Waterbury, Governor, uh, but I have to ask in terms of environment, uh, you know, there are people that have been uh, protesting against plans for a natural gas power plant in Killingly. Uh, the Connecticut Mirror reported you told environmentalists you don't want it, but the permits seem to be moving along. The developer hasn't given any indication the market conditions are unfavorable. If you don't want to see this power plant, what can you do to stop it, Governor? Well, first of all, um, I'm really proud that Connecticut is a leader in the country in having um, what will probably be the first zero carbon uh, electric grid. Uh, and that is going to be 90% carbon free within just a few years, Katie Dykes tells me. And I described the next largest source or now the largest source of pollutants in our state is um, our transportation system. And we're making progress there. Look, the uh, Killingly plant, it's a natural gas plant, obviously twice as efficient, three times as efficient as the other uh, plants, um, the older plants here in the state. 
Do I want to build uh, one of the last uh, natural gas power plants in the state of Connecticut? No. Um, are there a lot of games you can play um, that could potentially slow it down? Um, uh, no. I mean, right now there's a group um, called ISO. That's a regional group. They have authority over this. We're going to regulate the heck out of it, keep a close eye on it. I don't necessarily want to see it built. Uh, I'm not quite sure how many legal roadblocks you can put in the way. You mentioned ISO New England, but didn't they, uh, haven't they said that, you know, it's the, uh, each New England state controls what is built in their state, Governor, and so passing the buck to them completely, I mean, it's also something that you and, and Deep can also uh, work on, especially if you don't want to see it happen, as well as residents in our state. No, that's not right. I mean, ISO is the regional uh, body. Everybody is signed on to it. I didn't sign on to it. I want to deregulate ISO. Uh, they don't take into account uh, carbon in a way that they should, and they force some things like uh, killing the on us. Um, we have some local regulatory in terms of water courses and things. Uh, you know, we do, but um, uh, we're going to follow this very closely, Lucy. We'll have to leave it there because Governor Lamont has to head over to Waterbury. We appreciate your time, Governor. Still a lot of listeners want to ask you questions. We hope you come back soon. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks, everybody. Be safe. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to hear from Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. We heard a little bit about the, the budget proposal that he'll release the governor uh, next week. And also we'll get some more context about the relationship between the governor and the legislature. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You just heard Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont, who has extended his emergency powers to middle of April. Not everyone agrees with that decision, including Republican members in the Connecticut General Assembly. And next week, the governor will also release his proposal for the next two-year state budget. For more context on what's happening in our state government, joining us now on Zoom, Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. Mark, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So I wanted you to respond to what you heard from from Governor Lamont, especially when we talk about vaccinations. Again, the equity issue, a problem not only in our state, but nationwide. Uh, I'm just curious what your thoughts were on, on what he was saying about outreach and if the state has been doing enough to get there. So what you heard is really um, a consistent message that the governor has put forward. Um, they have chosen so far, I think um, simplicity over more complicated approaches. Um, and I don't say that to uh, dismiss it. You know, the governor, uh, as he said to you earlier, and as he said in the past, um, it's pretty simple to say, okay, 75 and older. You know, that's a very clear line. It's an easy standard. And then you're going to go to 65. And then, as he noted, in the next group after that, there's a million people and trying to um, set priorities within that group is is something they have been wary about doing. Um, you know, you had some some pretty, you know, kind of heartbreaking calls. I mean, the gentleman uh, who called about a family member who's a special ed teacher, you know, he made a great case. Right. 
these special ed kids cannot be wearing masks. These teachers are at greater risk. And that's the kind of stuff that the administration, I think, is going to have to do. The details as they go forward with this are going to become more difficult and arguably more important. Um, you know, the mirror uh, has done a story about racial disparities and it's just sort of demographics and the older group 75 and above that tends to be white folks when you get to 65 you know there's a lot more people of color and including uh there's some data that indicates that people of color 65 or older are, are actually at greater risk so there is some balance then but then you get to the questions of outreach and it's not just about making it available, but it's also about the messaging and trying to have confidence in some of the urban communities where there's a lot of doubts about uh, medical institutions. You know, there's a lot of history there. Um, and, you know, we've seen that uh, in the nursing homes where some of them, the utilization rate was in the, the 40s, 40%, um, even though the vaccine was available for 100% of their employees. Now, the Department of Public Health is uh, helping uh, municipalities. They're running this uh, vaccination program around the state. You know, have there been any issues that, uh, you know, will interfere with the work that needs to be done? Uh, the governor mentioning uh, Bridgeport needing help, and they don't even have a health director down there. But I'm wondering if you can give us some context on, you know, we have a, a, com a acting commissioner, Deidre Gifford, uh, who's uh, running both uh, the DPH, but she's also a D DSS. Uh, commissioner. There have been issues uh, with staffing and communications of that department. And because the governor said to us, it's only going to get more complicated, should we have full faith that this is going to work out uh, to the best? Uh, we don't know in terms of supply and demand, of course. Well, so the Bridgeport case raises an important thing that, that your listeners need to understand, that Connecticut does rely to a very large degree on local public health officials. It is one of the few areas in Connecticut where there's some decent level of regionalization. And instead of having 169 um, public health directors, you know, it's somewhere between 50 and 60. So there are um, there is some smart regional approaches. Um, but this was clear early on when it came to the the tracing and tracking that it's really done more at the local level. And Connecticut has underfunded um, these local public health officials for years. Um, that became clear um, early on. You know, there's a formula that has to do with, uh, you know, per capita rates, and they have underfunded that. And that's something that, you know, is has been exposed, that there's that weakness there. Um, so you're going to see disparities. You're going to see differences, I think, in the different cities and towns based on the quality and the aggressiveness of the locals. Um, you know, the Mirror has done a story where you looked at, you know, in Vernon, they're doing some creative things with Uber. Um, in the Bloomfield West Hartford district, um, there's a plan to use uh, firefighters to go door to door once they identify vulnerable people who perhaps do not have the ability to get out and get to a vaccination center, that they're going to actually have paramedics uh, accompanied by nurses, you know, going out there. And that's what, 
you're going to need to make this thing a success. Um, at the state level, you know, I don't know that the acting status of Deirdre Gifford is an issue. There's certainly been um, some management issues at DPH um, before Gifford got there. And there was certainly the controversy over, you know, the, the amount of the contract to hire a communication um, firm to help out. Um, I think there's a, you know, there's a quiet uh, admission in the administration that a quarter million dollars for that was was excessive. Hmm. Well, you know, I asked the governor about the extending, a caller also wanted to know about the extending the civil immunity for nursing homes. This is something that will continue through April 20th. Uh, you know, why does the governor favor this? This has become a, you know, again, continuing to con continue this immunity uh, for months now. Uh, did you feel like his answer to that question was satisfactory? <laughs> well, it's the it's the answer he's given for a while, and there's no um, follow up on his part. He mm -hmm. says it's something they're looking at, um, and then nothing happens. So I, I really can't give you any more insight than that. He's mm -hmm. he's given that answer several times. He's indicated it's under review. He is suggested it's going to change, uh, but it, it then it doesn't. So I, I can't tell you why or when uh, you'll, you'll see something. It's it's interesting to note that, you know, when we think about the regional approach to this pandemic, uh, you know, New York State has uh, lifted that uh, civil immunity in relation to nursing homes. So it is curious that the governor continues to, to have this here in our state when we're hearing from families and, and advocates that it's not something that's necessary um, at this point. So we'll have to stay tuned on what happens with that. And, you know, we before we head to break, I want to hear more about the story that you did with uh, about the governor's relationship with with the, the legislature as we uh, get his uh, two-year budget an announced uh, next week. But I'm wondering if you could just tell us some broad strokes. Uh, you know, today is a big day for Dr. Cardona, who is uh, Biden's choice for education secretary. How will he be remembered? Again, not everyone agrees with this push in our state to keep schools open. Well, it's it's been the great balance, if you, particularly at the younger grades um, and in communities where you know maybe there's a single parent or people uh the parent is is working um this has really been a lost time i think for a lot of younger children in urban schools and miguel cardona feels that deeply uh, he grew up in public housing in meriden um, and i think he is extremely sensitive to really the losses that um, these children are facing in, in kind of, you know, very vulnerable time. And so, yes, he's pushed back on that. You know, it's understandable why teachers, why teacher unions are saying, hey, if you're going to push us to be in the classroom, then maybe you should raise our priority on the vaccinations. Um, you know, these are all, <laughs> these are all reasonable complaints and reasonable suggestions. And of course, as the governor said, um, if you prioritize everybody, you prioritize nobody. But you know, this is this is something that Cardona was firm on from day one. Um, on the other hand, the governor did not make it a requirement. The state they punted to the school superintendents. It certainly fits in with the culture of New England, where there's local control of the schools, but. You know, the, the state could have um, taken the, the heat 
and the state could have mandated that, uh, particularly at elementary school, that it's you go back to in classroom uh, instruction. And perhaps if they had done that, th there would have been um, a responsibility for the state to then elevate those teachers for uh, vaccinations. But, mm -hmm. but you know, that's something Cardona again has been consistent on um, since the pandemic uh, arrived. Again, you're hearing Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. After a short break, we're going to hear more about the governor's learning curve dealing with the Connecticut General Assembly. This is where we live. is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. With me on Zoom, Mark Pazniokas, Capital Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. We heard from Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont in the first part of the show. Uh, you know, again, the governor is running the state during a pandemic, but he also has to submit a new two-year uh, state budget uh, governor. Talk about, or, uh, about the governor. So, Mark, can you talk about the relationship that Ned Lamont has with the legislature and, you know, some of the, the learning curve that he's had uh, in this third year of being uh, our state leader. It's striking that the governor and legislators still are trying to figure the other party out. Um, the governor is, you know, you people run for office touting themselves as outsiders. You know, that's become uh, a, a, something of, of political value. But in the case of Ned Lamont, that, that is real. Um, he has been around politics for certainly quite a while. He, you know, he was on the board of selectmen and the board of finance in Greenwich uh, a long time ago. He ran for U.S. Senate. He ran for a governor in 2010 before you know winning in 2018 but culturally he really is an outsider in hartford um you know geographically culturally politically he does not get um the rhythms of the general assembly what it's like to pull together um a, a majority in a 151 member house or 36 member senate i mean that's been clear from day one you know his approach is um is to reach for consensus which of course you know i think most people would applaud to a degree his line was you know my door is always open and i have a big table come in sit down and give me your ideas and that is great to a point, um, but the reality is when you are trying to pass anything that is controversial or has a political risk, that requires uh, drawing some sharp lines eventually. And that's been one of the complaints about Ned Lamont's management style. Uh, he said uh, in a conversation with me recently and with the rest of uh, some folks at the Mirror that he's gonna change that. He's going to be more definitive this time. Um, he has some, you know, a couple of items on his agenda that are going to be controversial. The expansion of gambling in Connecticut, that of course requires 
uh, cutting a deal with the tribes who have exclusive rights to casino gaming, and they believe that also extends to sports betting. And then you have the question of legalizing uh, marijuana, and that's going to require uh, a governor to clearly say how he thinks that should work, because the sale of marijuana, you know, as a concept, it's a simple thing. You're either in favor of it or you're not. But then you get down to the nitty gritty. And it, there's a lot of complexities there. There are issues of equity in the licensing. Who can who can grow and sell this stuff? Um, where should the money go? Should this be um, an opportunity to kind of redress some of uh, the criminal justice uh, inequities about who tended to be arrested for marijuana possession before it was decriminalized in Connecticut. And those are the things that really requires a governor and an administration to have an idea of where it wants to go um, and when you should give and compromise and when you should draw a, a hard line. And we have really not seen that that much from Ned Lamont. You know, he had a first year test with tolls, which uh, really was a disaster in that the way he presented it, it, he had reversed himself on a campaign promise. He campaigned on really being open only to tolling on trucks and then in his really his first full month as governor in 2019, he proposed uh, highway tolling on all motor vehicles. And he really did not do a good job of selling it. He did not explain why this was needed to in any really detail. Eventually they, they put out a pretty good plan that showed why this money was necessary and what it would mean for your average Connecticut taxpayer. You know, it, they, they put it in terms of reducing commuting times in very specific sections of I-95 and 91 and 84. Mm. And that was all good, but that it took them eight or nine months to do that. And then again, um, they went back to tuck, truck tolls when it was clear that cars mm. weren't going to pass. So, I mean, that was his first year experience. And if and if you look at this as almost a three-act play, um, you know, act one was tolls. And, you know, the governor likes to talk about other things, that he had a, a budget that was delivered on time, it was um, no uh, broad-based new taxes. Um, the state did get some positive um, attention from the Wall Street Journal and others about, uh, you know, a greater degree of fiscal stability, although you know, Lord knows that the state still has significant challenges ahead fiscally. And then you had, um, you know, Act Two, uh, everything changed. Um, the pandemic arrived, the legislature left, and lo and behold, the governor, who was one of the least popular governors in the United States, suddenly did not have a legislature to deal with. And his management of the pandemic, you know, generally speaking, has been well-received. The, the polling has been consistent. Um, people disagree with details here and there. And you heard that in some of the calls today, even people who are complaining about a specific thing, some of them, you know, seem to be generally 
um, disposed to how he's handling it. Because I think it, the governor, the pandemic has allowed the governor to show what was one of his strengths. I mean, he is genuinely, I think, an empathetic person. He he does come across in his COVID briefings uh, as, as somebody reasonable. He is not somebody who lectures the way that Governor Cuomo uh, does in his briefings and, and Cuomo. And he's certainly not a Dan Malloy. <laughs> he is not a Dan Malloy. He is and and there's there's good and bad to that. There are legislators who, you know, felt brutalized at times by Dan Malloy, but on the other hand, they admired the fact that Malloy almost always knew what he wanted and was willing to push. His first two years as governor, even though he was elected, you know, by a paper thin majority, and uh, by by those lights, he really had no political capital to spend. But he really dominated, and he has made a difference. He made a difference on criminal justice reform, on prison reform. Um, you know, they did some things with concessions with employees. Um, conservatives certainly would say it wasn't enough. But if you look at the political realities of uh, the two concession deals he did, uh, he did make some changes. Um, Connecticut's pension is still woefully underfunded. But the pension fund now going forward for people who are now hired today, that is uh, adequately funded. You know, it's really the historic, um, the historic mistakes mm. that Connecticut made over decades in not uh, in, in offering too much in benefits and not putting enough money away. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's that great contrast with, with Dan Malloy. And I hear that in my conversations with legislators that they do miss dealing with Malloy, who they knew where they stood. If Dan Malloy had was asked a question about immunity on nursing homes, in all likelihood, if he, he gave you an it. answer that we're doing something <laughs> there, that within a week you would have probably yep. seen something. We'll have to leave it there. That's Mark Pazniok, as Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. Again, the governor will have a budget proposal out next Wednesday. We'll be talking about that next week. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today's show, produced by Matt Dwyer.